The reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 3, reading from Matthew chapter 3 verse 13 to chapter 4 verse 11. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came to attend him. This is God's word. Our Father, we thank you that what we have here is, as Andrew has just said, your word. We thank you that this is not the speculations of dead people or living people. We thank you that it isn't guesses into what might be in the heavens or nothing. But we thank you that this is your word. That week by week as we come here, you speak to us, you teach us, you show us yourself and you show us Jesus. Father, please would you do that once again as we come to your word. Please speak. Please teach us. Please change us. For Jesus' sake. Amen. I didn't know there was such a thing as Ant-Man. Uh, until last week. It's, uh, there are a whole range of superheroes. Uh, some of the uh, Superman, Spider-Man, Batman, some of the classics. Ant-Man, that was new to me when I saw it on a billboard two weeks ago. In case you haven't seen it, uh, the billboards, it is a man whose secret power is that he can turn into an ant. Now, I think that when, I don't know whether it was DC or Marvel, when they get to that point, they've run out of ideas. <laughs> and the next thing might be a goldfish. Goldfish man. He goes in a circle going... I don't know. There are a huge number of superhero stories, hero stories, a huge number of films at the moment, seem to be coming out every six months. Uh, this camp I was on this last week, our theme was superheroes. We had them all uh, decorating the place in various costumes around. Banana Man, that's a classic. Most of our 11, 14-year-olds had no idea who Banana Man was. They thought he was a man that turned into a banana. But we have hero stories everywhere. Even if that's not your genre, 
uh, in all kinds of films, stories, books, uh, TV, there are stories of heroes, stories of heroines. We love a good hero story. Nearly, nearly all of us does. And of course, the Bible is full of hero stories, full of stories of men and women doing heroic, exciting things. And what we've just had read, that story of Jesus, his baptism, then going into the desert to face Satan, the one-on-one contest where he wins, it is one of the central hero stories of the Bible, as Jesus wins against a terrible enemy, against huge odds. And there can be an issue with the way we read hero stories in the Bible. I am... I normally work with the children here on a Sunday morning, and every now and then someone sends me something they hope I like it and buy more off them. Uh, this is Friends and Heroes, as seen on BBC TV, uh, the DVD. And uh, this is the story of Mackie and Portia, who live in Rome in the first century. Not a true story, uh, but a cartoon. And um, they get up to various adventures, and in every episode they hear a story from the Bible. And, well, in their words, my friends and I shared the stories of our people's heroes... And soon we became heroes too. That's the way that these guys approach the Bible's hero stories. We shared the stories of our people's heroes and soon we became heroes too. You read the story of the hero and you go out being a little bit more heroic. So here's just one example. In the episode called True Heroes, reports of rebels arriving by sea caused Tiberius to order the lighthouse extinguished. Oh no. But the story from the Bible of Gideon and the shepherds Those two stories show the importance of making a difference and valuing everyone. And I think it's not just these guys. I think a lot of us approach hero stories in the Bible like that. We read the story and we resolve, make a difference, value everyone, be a little bit more heroic. And that very quickly goes wrong. Because you read a hero story and resolve to be a hero story, you'll either succeed and be proud and slightly insufferable, or you'll fail more often, and it just leads to despair. On the other hand, if you read a hero story, knowing that you're someone that needs a hero, well, then it doesn't lead to pride, it doesn't lead to despair, it just leads to joy. And so here, as we come to this story, this story of Jesus, our hero, standing by himself against a a terrible enemy, we come to him needing a hero, and that is a source of huge joy. We're just for one week jumping into Matthew's Gospel. It seems appropriate on the morning of Peter's baptism to look at Jesus' at baptism. This is the first public appearance of Jesus as an adult in Matthew's Gospel. He's been a baby in chapters 1 and 2. In chapter 3, it's the first time he appears as an adult. His first words. And it's before we get to, just in chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe one of the most famous things that Jesus said, things like, love your enemies, come from the Sermon on the Mount. But before we get there, before we can listen to Jesus teaching his instruction, these are the things that Matthew thinks we need to know first. The things we see in in particular in Jesus' baptism. So we're going to see two things, uh, really, and then three implications of that for us. The first thing we see is that in this baptism, Jesus stands where we fail. Jesus stands where we fail. Just look back down again on page 967. Pick it up from verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? We know from earlier in the chapter, John's baptism is described as a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That means it's a baptism of turning direction. 
of saying, I have been going in the wrong direction, I'm going to change my direction. And it's a baptism that symbolizes washing, being made clean of the guilt that's inside each one of us. And John says to Jesus, so what are you doing? You have no sin that you need to repent of, that you need to turn from. There's no guilt inside you. You couldn't be any cleaner, any purer. Jesus, what are you doing? I need to be baptized by you, not you by me. But Jesus answered in verse 15. Verse 15, Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. Jesus says we should do this to fulfill all righteousness. Now, to understand what he means there, we need to go back a few hundred years in the Bible story to the story of the Exodus. Uh, it's a story if you've seen it. Prince of Egypt does a pretty good job. Uh, gods and kings does a pretty bad job uh, of the story of the Exodus. But it's a story of God's people are slaves in Egypt and they come out. Uh, God does incredible miracles. He brings them out of Egypt into freedom. And the first thing they do once they're out of Egypt, they go through the Red Sea which later in the Bible, in 1 Corinthians 10, that's described as their baptism into the Red Sea. They come out the other side and spend 40 years in the desert being tested and time and time again in the desert failing. And Matthew's saying, Jesus, he's doing that again here. Let me just show you that that is true. Just look back, uh, one page previously, 966, chapter 2, verse 14. So this is the Christmas story. King Herod is upset. There's another king on the scene, King Jesus. He wants every baby there killed to make sure Jesus dies. And so Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus, they're warned to run away. So chapter 2, verse 14, he's talking about Joseph. He got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now the prophet there is quoting Hosea, in the Old Testament part of the Bible. And all that Hosea is doing is looking back on history and saying, this is what happened. God's son, it's talking about Israel, about the nation. God said to that nation, I'm your father, you're my son. And so God called his son, Israel, out of Egypt. But Matthew says here, when Jesus went to Egypt and came out of Egypt, it fulfilled, it filled up that story. Because really that story of coming out of Egypt, of being baptised, of going into the desert for 40 years, it was getting us ready for the story of Jesus, who as a baby was rescued out of Egypt, who was baptised here and then spends 40 days for him, not 40 years, in the desert being tested. Jesus is fulfilling, he is reenacting, but making better, making right the story of what happened to God's people. He is standing where they failed. And so to get this right, we need to understand how hero stories work. When we see Jesus standing where we failed, we don't come to it and say, okay, so let's try again. We come to it and say, he's our hero who's rescued us. I mean, I, I, I think this is very well put. This is Martin Luther, up on the screen, a German pastor in the 16th century, uh, rediscovered some truths of the Bible that have forgotten for a long time. He put it like this. It's a little wordy. Let's see if we can get through it. The chief article and foundation of the gospel is that before you take Christ as an example, before you say be a hero, you accept and recognize him as a gift, as a present that God has given you and that is your own. This means that when you see or hear of Christ doing or suffering something, you do not doubt that Christ himself, with his deeds and suffering, belongs to you. This is the key sentence. On this you may depend as surely as if you'd done it yourself. 
indeed, as if you were Christ himself. You see Jesus Christ doing something, suffering something as your hero, and you can treat it as though you've done it. Let me put it another way. Uh, this week we had the annual game of Crocker. It's kind of it's quick cricket with a football and a baseball bat. It's an odd game, but a lot of fun. And it's leaders versus teenagers. So you have about 80 teenagers playing 40 adults in this game of continuous cricket. And uh, as every year, the adults win. Uh, they outnumber us, but we significantly outgun them. Uh, except we decided this year to make it interesting. At the end, we'd wipe the scores and have a winner's take all 4v4. So the four best teenagers, the best batsmen, get to play against four leaders picked at random. Uh, and whichever gets the highest score, that is the overall winner. We thought we'd make it interesting this year. And so the teenagers go in first to bat, they get a respectable score. In go the leaders, and uh, two runs short of victory, some people know Richard Perkins, uh, put the ball straight up into the hands of his oldest son, uh, which caused some delight on the part of the teenagers who had won. But of course, during that game 4v4, the vast majority of us were just sat on a grassy bank eating an ice cream. I was sat there watching the game, eating an ice cream. The teenagers were sat just over here watching the game, eating an ice cream. We did exactly the same thing. We sat on the same bank. We ate the same ice cream, not the same one. Uh, doing exactly the same thing. And yet as soon as he hit that ball and it was caught, I'd lost and they'd won. Because what Perks did on the field, he represented me. When he was out, I was out. When they won on the field, they won sat on the bank. See, a representative, whether it's in sport, whether it's in politics, whether it's in something else, what they do, it counts as though you've done it. And that's what's going on with Jesus here. Whatever he does, it counts as though those who are on his team have done it. So that's the first thing we see. Jesus stands where we fail. He reenacts, he fulfills the story of God's people and he does it right. And he does it for us. The second thing we see, verse 16 and 17, is very simply that the Father loves Jesus. The Father loves Jesus. I look down, verse 16. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he came up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened. Just pause there. Because I wonder how you'd expect that sentence to finish, how you'd finish it if you were in charge of writing Matthew's Gospel. Heaven was opened and... Now, of course, there are dozens of books, some make bestsellers lists, of people who have a near-death experience, claim they've been to heaven, they can tell us what's there. Matthew says you can ignore them all because here, heaven is opened. For a moment, it's like the curtain is pulled back and humanity gets a glimpse into heaven, into the centre of the universe. And what we see when heaven is opened is not just raw power. It's not just a giant brain. It is love. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him, and a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. The Spirit coming from heaven, it is a mark of the Father's love for the Son. In the Bible, the Spirit and God's love always go together. In Isaiah 42, we saw at the top of the service, God says, here's my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight, I will put my Spirit on him. Those who have the Spirit are those who God delights in. Those who God delights in, he gives his Spirit to. 
And it's underscored in verse 17 by the voice. A voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. In all of Matthew's gospel, you hear God's voice twice. Only twice in the whole gospel. This is one of them. The other is in chapter 17 where God says, this is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. It's as though Matthew said to God, if you could say one sentence to the world, in my gospel, I'll give you one sentence to say from heaven. Say whatever you like. God says, this is my sentence. I love Jesus. And Matthew says, tell what, I'll give you two sentences. God says, I'll just say it again. I love Jesus. He's my son with whom I delight, with whom I'm well pleased. That is the one thing that God wants the world to know when he speaks from heaven. See, that is what you see when heaven is opened. You see love. You see God the Father who loves God the Son, who pours out his spirit on Jesus. That's what you see as far back as you wind the clock. If you stuck the the history of the universe in a DVD player and rewound it as far back as you could go, you would always see God the Father loves God the Son. God the Son loves the, the Father in the Spirit. You would see love. See, the truth is that the idea of the Trinity, that God is three and one, it's not a bizarre maths puzzle. How can one plus one plus one equal one? It's not the question you hate to get asked at the pub. It is saying that at the center of the universe is love. Psychologists will say, repeatedly, study after study, one of the best things that parents can do for their children is to love one another. Where parents love each other, children are brought up in a home that's marked by love. They're brought up in a home where they know they're secure because daddy loves mummy and mummy loves daddy. They're brought up in a home where they can learn to love because they copy what they see. This truth, when the father speaks from heaven and says, this is my son whom I love, says that Christians grow up in a universe that is marked by love. A universe that is secure because the father loves the son and the son loves the father. A universe where we can learn to love as we watch this love. Jesus' baptism tells us that Jesus stands where we fail. It tells us that the Father loves Jesus. Okay, those two things. How do you put them together? What do they mean for us? I think three things. I'm sure there's more. Three things we're going to say that this means for us. This means for us, look up, give up, take up. Look up, give up, take up. First, it means look up at Jesus. Look up at Jesus. Because if this is what God thinks of Jesus, if God thinks of Jesus, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased, then when we think any less of Jesus, we are out of line with reality. I don't know if you remember the story. Uh, This flower pot caused a bit of a stir back in October last year. Uh, A bloke called Terry... Uh, his mum had bought this at a car, car boot sale for a few quid. Uh, she really liked it. Uh, Terry was never sure why, but when she died, she left it to him. Uh, and so kind of sentimental value, he thought he'd keep it in the house, even though he never liked it. Uh, and it lived in his living room. And his son played football indoors, and it must have been a big living room. Uh, and the goalpost was a lamp, and on the other side, this flower pot. Uh, those were the goalposts for indoor football in the house. Until one day, uh, Antiques Roadshow was in town and Terry thought, why not? It'd be fun to get on the telly. Uh, And so went along and took this flower pot and was told by the expert, you need to take this to an auction. And he did, and it sold for £668,000. 
And all that time he thought it was just a bit of tat that my mum got at a car boot set. I mean, imagine if the ball had gone through it. Uh, £668,000. And until an expert told him, he thought it was worth a few quid. And it is very easy to undervalue Jesus. I mean, who would be your expert, your go-to expert, not on antiques, but on ultimate satisfaction and joy and pleasure? It would have to be God. God has deeper capacity for joy and for pleasure than anyone in this room ever does. And he has an infinite number of choices of things to go to for enjoyment. All the antiques ever fashioned, all the sports ever played, all the wine ever distilled, all the music ever composed, all the cars ever designed, all the films ever produced, all the deals ever closed. God could have any of them. He's God. And he says, no, but Jesus... This is my son whom I love. In him, with him, I'm well pleased. And so this calls us to look up and see the value of Jesus. If any of those things or if anything else we value more than him, we find more delightful than him, well, either we're wrong or God's wrong. We are out of step with reality if we find anything more valuable, more delightful than Jesus. So this tells us first to look up, to look up at Jesus and see his value. Secondly, to give up. To give up being Jesus. To give up being the hero. Uh, this last week, one of the things we do at camp every year is ask each of the teenagers there, would you call yourself a Christian? Uh, we do that in an individual conversation uh, and just ask the question and see what they say. Uh, a number of, majority of the kids who come to this particular thing uh, have grown up in Christian families, have grown up uh, going to churches. It's very easy for them and others to assume, well, of course you're a Christian because your parents are Christian, but to give them a chance to think for themselves, would you call yourself a Christian? And it's funny how many of them, even though they know, they've been taught for a long time, that a Christian is someone who trusts God's promise. Even though during the week we talk very clearly that a Christian is someone who trusts God's promise. It's astonishing how many of them answered with, sometimes I'm good enough to be a Christian and sometimes I'm not. At camp, I'm a Christian because it's easy to live like a Christian. At school, I behave badly and so I stop being a Christian. And I think what they say out loud is what all of us think, at least some of the time. I'm a Christian or not, depending on how well I've done this week depending on my performance, depending on my behaviour. And so I see Jesus the hero and I, I want to step it up. I'm going to be as good as Jesus. And a passage like this should teach us just to give up. To give up trying to be Jesus because God says, this is the one I love. This is the one I love. This is the kind of thing that delights me. And you read the rest of Matthew's Gospel and you think, of course he's right. You read Matthew's Gospel and see a man in whom there isn't a shred of the one-upmanship that we find repulsive in others and we find repulsive in ourselves. There isn't a trace of hypocrisy or greed or favoritism or selfishness. Not an ounce of belittling or coveting. We see Jesus and think, of course that's who God loves. And then we look at ourselves next to him and think, well, if that's the standard, if that's what God loves, if that's who God delights in, there's no way that I'm going to measure up to that. You see, even more clearly, in uh, the second part of what we had read, the temptation is Jesus has offered the universe and says, no, I'm going to turn that down and instead I'm going to suffer because 
I want to honour my father. If this is the hero that God loves, that God delights in, there's no way that you, there's no way that I can live up to that standard. And so this calls us to look up and see the value of Jesus, to give up trying to be Jesus, but thirdly, to take up. To take up what Jesus had offered us. Because Jesus isn't here saying, this is what it takes. This is what you should do, now off you go. Jesus there saying, this is what I've done, and now it's yours. One of the reasons that Christians are baptised, as we baptised Peter this morning, there's lots of reasons for that, lots of things it symbolises the Bible would say, but one of them is it symbolises that what's Jesus is, is ours. As Jesus was baptised, under the water and out of it again, And as he heard these words, you're my son whom I love, every baptised Christian, or for Peter this morning, what was offered to him was this. What was offered to him is that if he will be part of Jesus' team, if he will take Jesus, his hero is his representative, then what's Jesus' is his. Of course, that's not automatic for Peter. We've been very clear this morning, baptism doesn't make you a Christian. But this morning a promise was made to him. That if he will have Jesus, then he will have everything that is Jesus. As he grows up, he'll choose whether to accept that promise or not, whether to take it up or not. And that same choice, that same offer, is made to everyone in this room. Those who will take Jesus as their hero will have everything that is Jesus's. That Paul says about Christians in Romans 5 that God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he's given us. That Christians have God's love and Christians have God's spirit because we are in Jesus, because we're with him, because we're on his team. Uh, Jesus was baptised 2,000 years ago. As he did, as he came out of the water, the spirit descended on him and he heard a voice from heaven. If you would say that you're not a Christian... What you need to know is that God says of Jesus, this is my son whom I love. With him, I'm well pleased. If you're here and you say you're a Christian, you're following Jesus, trusting him, then what you need to know is what is his is yours. And so God the Father would say to you, and one day will publicly, you are my son, my daughter whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. God loves Jesus. And everyone who has Jesus, their hero, has everything that's his. Should we pray together again? Our Father, we have no right to call you our Father. Uh, Not naturally, not in ourselves. Not with the people we are and the lives that we've lived. But we thank you, we praise you that you are our Father. For everyone who's trusting in Jesus, for everyone who has Jesus, their hero, their champion. We can hear these words spoken to him and know that they are ours. Father, we pray that this week as we go into the world, please would we go knowing that for those who are trusting in Christ, we are your son or your daughter whom you'd love with whom you are well pleased. Amen.